0: Change of plan. <laughs> so, reading from chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips?
1: Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Kami. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, Daughter of Aminadab and sister of Nation, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron.
2: Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh.
3: Thank you so much for reading. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can only imagine how that reading was divided up. I think in the Bible times, you know, they used to draw straws and I think Joseph pulled out the short one. But he did very well. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, uh, in October last year, a young bachelor of this parish by the name of Josh got down on one knee before a lovely young woman called Emmy. I wasn't there, but I guess the conversation went something like this Will you marry me? I will. There were some tears and joy as well, but that's the substance of the conversation. Now, as a result of that, a lot of things have changed and are changing. A lot of commitments uh, have been made. First thing was a ring was bought. It It had a diamond on it. Now, that must have set young Josh back a few bob. Then a wedding dress has been purchased. The most expensive garment that a woman will wear for the shortest period of time why do we think this is a good idea (laughs) a wedding venue has been booked a sort of reception venue and I guess they're now planning for caterers and printing invites and making plans and all the stuff that goes with wedding flowers and cakes and bridesmaids and groomsmen and all the rest of it big decisions where we gonna live when we get married and perhaps most serious of all saying goodbye To a Peugeot GTI sports car and saying hello to a sensible Nissan Qashqai family car. Some petrol heads here have just silently grieved for Josh. Huge decisions have been taken, but based on what? Based on a promise. I will. Two little words that make a pretty big statement. I will. But you know, engagement is a promise nothing more. The only thing guaranteeing that young Josh won't be standing here in October on his own is the promise of Emmy. I will. And yet Josh seems very confident. He's making all these huge choices and commitments with carefree abandon. In fact, he told me this week, I really feel secure in that promise. I said, why? And he said, when you're just dating, it still might not work out. But now there is a spoken commitment. I will. And what is he basing his confidence? A roll of a dice? Is he rash and irresponsible? Well, he does have one thing. He does have history. He's got a shared history with Emmy where they have got to know each other and built a relationship. And he knows her. He knows a character. And based on that, he has good reason to believe the promise for the future and make those commitments and make those decisions. Promises and history. Now, we are at a crucial point in the story of Exodus today. Last week, we read how Moses and his brother Aaron were emboldened by their encounter with the living God, and they went to Pharaoh, The Pharaoh means king, just as God had told them, and they took the word of God the words that God had given them to say, and they made the request, let my people go, and it could not have gone worse. Far from rolling over and saying, tickle my tummy, Pharaoh stared them out. Then he parks his tanks on Moses' lawn. He turns his wily mind to the slave nation and devised a cruel strategy. He stops their supplies of straw which are essential to brick making in the ancient Near East, but he insists that they make the same quota of bricks and the result is that the people scatter all over the country looking for straw and then they fail to make their quota and then the guys with the big sticks show up, the slave drivers, and they beat the Israelite foremen. They beat them. And these foremen, they're like the union officials, they go to plead their case with Pharaoh. Surely he's going to be reasonable. But like many a corporate boss, Pharaoh is having none of it. He's not going to tolerate any strike action either. He already has his spin doctors work up the official line. It's your problem. You are lazy. And so the Israelite foremen are furious. They went and found Moses and Aaron and had a meeting that probably turned the air blue. If written down, it might have turned the book of Exodus from a PG to a 15. Here's one way to interpret chapter 5, verse 21. If you've closed your Bible, please do open it up again. Chapter 5, verse 21, which says, um, they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron, waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. Now, another way of translating this is, What the boop do you think you're playing at, you crazy pair of old boop? You almost boop got us boop killed. That's my translation. Now just put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. He's risked everything on this venture. He was all set on a quiet retirement in the country. Then he encountered God at the burning bush. He heard the voice of the Lord. He left his home of several decades. He took his family. He went to a people who didn't know him. He faced up to the king, and this is what happens. No wonder he makes the appeal, the desperate appeal of chapter 5, verse 22. We've looked at this before. He he returns to the Lord and says, Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And he is despairing. And bringing his anguish before the living God. And that's where we left him last week. What happens next? In this context of demoralization and despondency, what will God do? Look at how the, the situation. Chapter 6 verse 9 just says very briefly a very poignant description. Chapter 6 verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Another version translates this despondency. Another translation, the the Jewish translation says, their spirits were crushed. The New American Standard Bible says, broken spirit. You get the idea. What is God going to do now? If you were Moses, what would you want at this moment? I know what I would want. I would want a a quick, instant solution and relief from all this trouble and probably to get let off the hook of leadership. I'm an Israelite leader. Get me out of here. But that is not what God does. In the lowest moment, when the night is darkest, here's what he does. He makes a promise Based on history, he makes a promise. First point the promises of God. God says, I will, not just one time, but seven times. Look at chapter 6, verse 6 to 8 again. Notice, count, count with me how many times God says, I will. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, this is marriage language. I will. He says, I will, seven times. And what is he promising? The first three promises are all about rescue and salvation. Being saved out of a desperate, hopeless situation. Saved from darkness, brought into light. I will bring you out. I will free you. It's the language of liberation, of emancipation, of slaves being brought into being free people. I will redeem you. In the culture of that time, there was a particular relationship within a family, within a kinship group called the kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew language, it's the Goel. And if you've ever read the book of Ruth, or you were here for our series on the book of Ruth last year, you will remember that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, is a very important figure when a family hits rock bottom, when they're going to have their historic land taken away, they've sold the farm, they're losing everything. Family members could get sold into slavery, by the way, to pay off debts. There's no social security to back you. If it came down to it, you're absolutely bankrupt. You sell the family into slavery. But you might have one hope, which is the kinsman redeemer. Your, your uncle. Your great uncle. Your granddad. Somebody, A near relative could come and say, I will, I will pay their debts and redeem them from that situation. God here he describes himself like that. He's... The closely related kin with this responsibility for protecting and regaining the people in the family. And he says, I'm going to do it with an outstretched arm. A symbol of great strength and power used of God's mighty deeds. He will reach his arm out and rescue them. Three promises about salvation. Then two promises that evoke the language of marriage and intimacy. I will take you. I will be. Promises of a covenant relationship God will bind himself to his people as a husband and wife. Bind themselves to one another. Never shall the two be broken apart. This speaks of an exclusive, devoted relationship of love. Salvation, love, and finally two promises of a home. I will bring you to the land, the good land that I've promised you, and I will give it to you as a possession. Now, to a people who have been aliens and strangers in a land not their own, oppressed and marginalized and landless, with no rights, these are heavenly promises, aren't they? We will have a place to call our own. We will have a home. With all the security and safety and warmth and sense of belonging that that word home evokes for us in the English language, the seven I wills of Exodus 6 are promises of salvation, promises of a committed relationship, promises of a good home. You can see why the Bible uses marriage imagery for God and his people, can't you? We've used that in some of our songs. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. That committed intimate relationship. And surrounding all these promises is a kind of golden bracket. Verse 6 and verse 8, God uses this phrase deliberately, I am the Lord. And if you've been with us, if you haven't been with us, let me just explain that when you see the capital letters in verse 6, Lord, but they're small capitals, this is a particular word underneath that that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, which is God's personal name that he's given specially to Moses as a sign of his commitment. And God says it in verse 6 and verse 8. I am Yahweh. I will do all this. It's a promise. Now, I just want to clear up something a bit weird in verse 2, which has troubled many people over the years. Verse 2 says... um, I am the Lord, same phrase, but then in verse 3 it says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. And that's quite odd because the name Lord does appear all through the book of Genesis in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So what does it mean? Now there are two ways of looking at this. One is that God is talking about an escalation. Yet they did kind of know Him by that name. But now they won't, the the Israelites are going to know God with a far greater magnitude and intensity and drama of his action than was ever seen before by this name. Another way of translating it actually is as a question. I'll just put it into the language of some scholars. I am the Lord, and I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty and my name is Yahweh did I not make myself known to them the same phrase can be used as a question didn't I make myself known to them in other words in the past hundreds of years ago your your ancestors Abraham Isaac Jacob I've made myself known to them and I'm doing the same today yesterday today tomorrow Jesus Christ the same but this name the Lord that he's given them is really profound and this statement When kings in the ancient world gave a a proclamation of a king, they said, I am, fill in the gap, I am Nebuchadnezzar. I am Ramesses. So God is using king language. I am Yahweh. God speaking as the great king, the king of kings, reminding Moses of his authority and his majesty. And when God uses this phrase in the Bible, more often than not, He's affirming his commitment to his people. The great king who is the great husband. So the sevenfold promise, the seven I wills, is set in a declaration like a diamond set in a ring of gold. And God is saying, this is who I am. Remember who I am. Therefore you know what I will do. And what he promises isn't really new. It's basically a reaffirmation of what he's already said to Moses earlier in the book. It's not plan B, it's plan A reaffirmed. And at this point, Moses wobbles again. He goes back to the old objection, verse 30, he says, but Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? It's the old excuse, I'm not a good speaker. Moses is saying, I'm not very persuasive, you know. I don't really like going up front with a microphone. I didn't have a career in sales. You know, I was a shepherd. Just look what happened the last time. Now everyone hates me. The Israelite foreman have got a dartboard in the canteen with a picture of my face on it. You really want me to go back in for round two with Pharaoh? The bloke's an animal. Last time he bit my ear off. He's like the Mike Tyson of the ancient world. I don't want to get back in the ring. I can't speak. I can't do it. Please send someone else. Can you blame Moses at this point? So all of that raises a question, doesn't it? Uh, We've got promises here, but on what can Moses base his confidence? What guarantees does he have that he should make this huge life decision based on the promise of God? He has history. He has history. And it's good for us to think about that because we live in a, a, a moment of time, a cultural time, where... It's all about how we feel right now. We tend to forget our history, even our personal ones, certainly the history of the last few hundred years. But the Bible is very emphatic about the importance of history and its witness. So our first point was the promises of God, and then the second point is the witness of history. You may well have wondered when our readers read this passage for us, why? The writer paused the story at verse 12 and inserted a long family record, a long family tree. It's not the sort of thing that we like to read in modern day novels, is it? I can't think of a book that has a family tree stuck in the middle of a story. You younger people who are having to write stories at school, you know, English language, you've got to write a story of less than 500 words that pleases the examiner. You'd never stop and put a family tree in the middle of it. You might maybe put that in an appendix, not in the middle of the narrative. Because for us, a family tree kills momentum. I wonder if you felt that when Joseph was reading. And so, if we're honest, most people, if they do Bible reading plans, they probably skip a bit when they get to the genealogies. You know, one person's giggling. You know, you get to your Bible reading plan, you think, oh, first nine chapters of Chronicles, tick, tick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Who>? <laughs> you know, And actually in churches, you don't often hear the, the whole family tree read out. That's why I was so glad we did it, and Joseph did a super job. But that's the point. Genealogies are boring. They're boring because they make us stop, take a breath. They stop the story rushing on, and they make us stand still for a moment, and they make us pause and think. And what we are thinking about is a lot of dead people. That's right. Because genealogies are there to remind us of the past. They remind us of the rhythms of history. They put our lives, our problems, in the perspective of time. And we need to do that. I have my uh, personal Bible here. It's really tatty. It's now held together with uh, tape. And in the front of this, I've got written in this. Uh, they have these, you know, some Bibles have these family tree pages. I've got my wife's family tree on the left and husband's family tree on the right. And I, my mum had traced some family history going back through all old records and archives. So I got names and dates and I wrote them into this Bible. And it only goes back to the late uh, 19th century. Uh, and I read these names: James Tyndall, Lillian Malone, William Hampson, Florence Diggle. What a name! John Hodgson Tyndall, Mary Blake, John William Malone, Ellen Condren, George Hampson, Elizabeth Eleanor Edwards, Leonard Diggle, Rose Annie Godfrey. A mixture of Irish and Mancunian and Northwest people. And you know what? I only met one of them. My parents this week told me that uh, three of our, my grandparents died in their 50s. And my mother's older three siblings died at the age of 53 or 54. Oh. <laughs> Just enjoy the next couple of years with me. It's going to be great. <laughs> I never knew these people. Uh, I I guess their problems were just like ours, really. But no one knows now. They're buried somewhere in Manchester. Now Moses' family tree goes back even further, over 400 years. It goes right back to a man who was actually called Israel. That was his nickname. His name was Jacob. And if you look in verse 14, uh, we start with Jacob's sons. Reuben, the sons of Re- uh, Reuben and so on. And then it actually this, this, this uh, family tree goes forward from the time of the Exodus to the future to Phineas, the grandson of Aaron. So it's looking two ways. So this family tree was written down years after the Exodus to remind the people of the situation of history. Now what is the writer doing? Now the writer is Moses. So he's deliberately crafting this with, with this genealogy. He's carefully placed it here. On one level, this is all about credentials. It is reassuring the readers that in spite of all the hiccups, Moses and Aaron are the real deal, authentic Israelites' leaders. They do have the family credentials to be the spokesman. But there is a deeper point than that here. And it's this. This family tree is a record of human failure and divine faithfulness. Human failure and divine faithfulness down through the years. Some of these names are like a click down, drop down box. You know you click on a link on your internet screen and a box drops down. Some of these names are there. You've got to click on them and drop down and see what drops down. Reuben, verse 14. The firstborn son of Israel, the firstborn son, supposedly the most responsible member of the family who will carry on the family line and traditions. What a guy. He slept with his father's concubine. Now what does that do to a family dynamic? <laughs> Here's what his dad said. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable. As water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben was actually demoted from his position as the firstborn. It's not a very glorious start to the family tree, is it? What about the next names? Simeon and Levi. These are brothers. These two had a beautiful, gorgeous sister called Dinah. One day she was out visiting some friends. A ruler, a man called Shechem, just went head over heels for her. She was just so gorgeous. And he grabbed her. And he violated her. And then he fell in love with her. And he wanted to marry her. And when these two brothers heard about what he'd done to their sister, they were filled with grief and fury. So they concocted a clever plan. They tricked Shechem into having all the males in his house circumcised. Shechem thought this was part of a marriage plan. And Genesis 34 says that three days later, while all of them were still in pain, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. You do that to our sister, we'll butcher every single one of you. They looted the city and took everything of value. Now what's that going to do to a family? Christmas dinner you know it's a bit dysfunctional isn't it (laughs) here's what dad said about that Simeon and Levi you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Perizzites my numbers are few if they gather themselves against me and attack me I shall be destroyed both me and my household. In other words, you have now risked the entire family's existence, you two. And then further on in this genealogy, we've got verse 15. It says, uh, you notice at the end of that verse, sorry, midway through the verse, the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shul. No, it says it out loud, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Right. Simeon was quite literally sleeping with the enemy. Now look at the last name on the family record in verse 25, right at the bottom there. The last name on the family record is Phineas. And this name is a reminder of one of the worst episodes in Israel's history, which is in Numbers 25, later on in our Bible. While they were staying in a place called Shittim, the Israelite men indulged in sexual immorality with Moabite women and they worshiped their gods And that was not that long after God had rescued them from Egypt. This guy, Phineas, was the only one who took vigorous action, violent action, and he stopped God's anger. But it's a reminder of corporate failure. So what is going on in this family tree? It is the ancient Near Eastern version of Peaky Blinders. Or the Sopranos. Talk about a dysfunctional family. It's like a soap opera, a record of human Failure from start to finish. And yet, in spite of all that, it is also at the same time a record of divine faithfulness. A divine faithfulness. God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would grow to be a great nation. And they did. God had promised that He would free them from captivity after 400 years and give them a home of their own. And He would. God had promised that He would be their God and they would be his people. And through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, through all the twists and turns of history, God was faithful to his promise. And this boring bit of writing is a reminder of that. The family record is eloquent testimony to the fact that if God makes a promise, he obligates himself. He cannot lie and go back on his word. The genealogy shows continuity, It is therefore a massive reassurance. God is keeping his promises. He is working them out. So, what about you? Here you are, 21st century South London suburbs. Have you heard God's call to trust him with your life and follow Jesus Christ? Are you weighing up the choice of following Jesus or staying in Egypt, the old way of life? And what are you doing about that call? I want to speak to two potential different kinds of audience here. Some of you here are are Christians. You've, You've experienced the new birth. You know you've come out of Egypt and you've been following Jesus for a while. Are you now, dear friend, like Moses in the darkest hour of the night And full of fears. Not inclined to trust God anymore. You want to back out. Are you like those people. So discouraged. That your spirit is crushed. You don't know if you can trust anymore. Or are you friends. Like the people after the exodus. Redeemed but very forgetful. Sliding back into the sexual habits of your culture sliding back into the cold heart and the love of things of this world, sliding back into the idolatry of this culture and all the things that it worships, material things, external things, shallow things. Well, what have you got from God? Not instant relief and automatic deliverance, much as we would like it, but you've got promises and history, Here are some of the promises that Jesus made. Here are seven I wills of Jesus Christ. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will rise on the third day. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Some of the I wills of Jesus Christ spoken to you, Christian friend, today. There are many, many more. The New Testament is rich with his promises. Let's spend some time this week looking at them and in our life groups reflecting on them together. I've spoken to Christians. I also want to speak to people here who are exploring the Christian faith or you're just not sure of your faith commitments. And I want to just, again, put before you the nature of biblical faith, which is not a quick fix for one's problems here and now, but a set of marvelous promises made in God's Word to you as a human being, confirmed to you by His Holy Spirit, based on God's character. So faith for you is about believing promises and making life changes on the result as a result of them. And the first change could be to pray, "Lord, I'm not sure about all this, but I'm asking you to come into my life today." Would you do that? What's the alternative? What is this promise of Jesus Christ based? It's based on the witness of history, the history of what God has done in Christ. My confidence today as a Christian pastor, the confidence that led me to give up a lucrative career and a a nice life in London and base our family fortunes on following Jesus Christ into ministry, is not based on a religious experience. I haven't had ecstatic religious experiences my confidence is based on the empty tomb of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, witnessed to by eyewitnesses. George Eldon Ladd was one of the great theologians of the last century, one of the great evangelical theologians. He was an American man. He taught at a huge college called Fuller Seminary. And one year, all the students were gathered on the first day of term, and they were all in this big hall, and they were being told about what was coming next. And George Eldon Ladd, who was a very tall man, with a deep, booming voice, stood up in front of a bunch of young Jesus people, hippies, and he said to them, I have never had a religious experience, but I do believe in the resurrection. That's what we base our confidence on. Now, you might have had religious experiences, that's great, but you can't build your life on them. Our hope as Christians is not based on our own experiences, our shifting sands, the circumstances of our lives, but on the solid rock of what Jesus has done in space and time in history. So what are you basing your life on today? On the promises of Jesus or on something else? What are you basing your happiness on today? Are you basing your happiness on something that you have no control over? You know where that's going to lead? Will you take your stand on the promises of God today? On the words of Jesus, base your life, build your life, bet your life on them. Follow him. Risk everything for him, knowing that he's done it all for you already. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality of your word and how the so-called heroes of faith are actually just like us. They forget, they waver, they disobey, they need to be brought back. And we thank you that you're so faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, you are. So make yourself great, far greater in our minds and our lives this week so that we will know what you've promised us and we will build our lives on that. In Jesus' name, amen.